Uh, before I even say a little bit about the book that we're here for tonight, I do want to say about having Leslie Jamison here, uh, we have, um, I, I haven't even told her this um, little, it's not, it's not quite an anecdote, but um, the book, she, she is here for this extraordinary book tonight, um, but uh, before tonight she would have been, is known to many of you as a writer uh, for this extraordinary book of essays called The Empathy Exam, uh, which came out four years ago, and Grey Wolf Press, a wonderful press, uh, published it. And Grey Wolf had been doing a number of these books uh, somewhat similar to that, uh, books of essays, uh, writers like Eula Biss, Jeff Dyer, Maggie Nelson, and others. But The Empathy Exams was the one that um, truly took off. It became a national bestseller. And uh, prior to that, if, talking to New York publishers who were part of the whole landscape of books, there's smaller pu publishers and the bigger ones, but you'd say, oh, what about this kind of book? And they'd say, oh, it's essays. They just would sort of give this dismissive, um, these little books of, of pieces and things like that. And they, they either wanted these big books in scope or uh, the same way they want novels but not short stories. But um, Grey Wolf was doing these books that all were working. And then in, in the case of of Leslie's uh, empathy exams, it you know truly um, was became this incredible thing, and so that has changed uh, the way New York publishers now sort of embrace. Uh, I, you see and hear um, them taking on various books, and especially at a time when uh, journalism doesn't have all the place it used to have, magazines, newspapers, uh, the form of that kind of nonfiction writing. Um, the place it has in books is, is, is even more important one. This is something that's also borne out in uh, what Leslie's, uh, I wouldn't call it a day job, but her other role besides being a writer is directing the nonfiction writing program, at, uh, the graduate program at Columbia University. So um, that it's, it's an important part of writing, but she actually, that what happened with the empathy exams is a part of that. Uh, the book she's here for tonight, uh, The Recovering uh, Intoxication, and its aftermath is a book that um, does many things, and it's a brilliantly, powerfully written book, uh, tracing um, her own story, but but always through through this um, story of her own self. Uh, there is there are larger and other stories being told as well. Um, the whole um, issue of sobriety and going through alcohol and addiction, and and all the stages and phases of things that, that are gone through um, individually, but also then with others. And um, this begins, and, and there's also a whole special part to, I'd say, to the relation of this to creativity, to writing. Um, and early on in the book where um, University of Iowa is written of, where many writers we've known, uh, Raymond Carver is certainly prominent in this, in this story, of their issues with drinking and, and um, eventual recovery. Through all the book, though, she, she tells these stories, but also there's this larger and great spirit going through it. And her own journey uh, to, to and through recovery uh, to uh, coming out um, the other side, as it were, but to still being, you know, taking this on as a daily thing is um, powerfully written, uh, written of great power and empathy and, uh, and, um, and a lot of background. You look at the back of the book, um, this book has, uh, this is not just a light, slight memoir. This book has um, you know, footnotes and um, source material. Her, even her acknowledgments have all these other um, books written of. So it's a very learned, knowing book. And um, that, that, all that also is important as to get, keep stories from just the personal 
to the larger uh, areas they're all based in. So tonight, uh, you will first hear Leslie read from uh, Recovering, and then uh, she will be joined here um, in conversation by Claire Dieter, who we're delighted is over here from Bainbridge. Uh, Claire herself has written extraordinary nonfiction books, of earlier book called Poser, and last year's Love and Trouble with a great um, subtitle, A Midlife Reckoning, uh, which is just about to be in paperback, but uh, it's a book that also um, tells a personal story, but also there's, there's larger things she does there, uh, stories of what it was to come of age in the 1980s in, in a certain, being raised a certain way, uh, and in her case, she ended up largely raising herself or being able to um, learn all sorts of things in the U District. I mean, you read, this is Seattle, uh, 1980s. Uh, but but there's sort of a there's there's things that go on and a lot of it about the sexual objectification of girls that age and both in popular culture but then it, is, it was also um, lived out and as she as she portrays quite powerfully in this book so they will um, converse up here and then take uh, Leslie will take questions uh, and then following that we'll have um, signed copies of their books uh, we have her first book too the novel the gin closet which uh, got great reviews it was a finalist for Los Angeles Times Book Award when it was published in 2010. So we have those books and they'll sign, she'll sign afterwards. And we also have Claire's books as well. So with that, we again, for Elliott Bay and um, everyone at the Seattle Public Library Foundation and the Seattle Public Library, thank you for being here. And now Ashley, please join in welcoming the extraordinary writer, Leslie Jamison. Um, thank you for that introduction, Rick, and thank you all for coming. It's incredible to be here. I'm in awe of the structure that we're all inside of. I'm so happy to be talking to you tonight, Claire. Um, and uh, as some of you might know, I'm, I'm on this book tour with my three-month-old daughter and, and my mother, for those of you who are worried about where the baby is at this particular moment. Um, <laughs> And it's just a really, it's a special time in my life to be able to share this journey with her. And um, so anyway, thank you all for being part of it. I'm gonna read just a short section from the beginning of this book and then Claire and I will chat for a bit and then hopefully there'll be some questions from you guys as well. The first section of the book is called Wonder. The first time I ever felt it, the buzz, I was almost 13. I didn't vomit or black out or even embarrass myself. I just loved it. I loved the crackle of champagne, its hot pine needles down my throat. We were celebrating my brother's college graduation and I wore a long muslin dress that made me feel like a child until I felt something else, initiated, a glow. The whole world stood accused. You never told me it felt this good. The first time I ever drank in secret, I was 15. My mom was out of town. My friends and I spread a blanket across living room hardwood and drank whatever we could find in the fridge, Chardonnay wedged between the orange juice and the mayonnaise. We were giddy from a sense of trespass. The first time I ever got high, I was smoking pot on a stranger's couch, my fingers dripping pool water as I dampened the joint with my grip. 
A friend of a friend had invited me to a swimming party. My hair smelled like chlorine and my body quivered against my damp bikini. Strange little animals blossomed through my elbows and shoulders where the parts of me bent and connected. I thought, what is this? And how can it keep being this? With a good feeling, it was always more again, forever. The first time I ever drank with a boy, I let him put his hands under my shirt on the wooden balcony of a lifeguard station. Dark waves shushed the sand below our dangling feet. My first boyfriend, he liked to get high. He liked to get his cat high. We used to make out in his mother's minivan. He came to a family meal at my house, fully wired on speed. So talkative, said my grandma, deeply smitten. At Disneyland, he broke open a baggie of withered mushroom caps and started breathing fast and shallow in line for Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, sweating through his shirt, pawing at the orange rocks of the fake frontier. If I had to say where my drinking began, which first time began it, I might say it started with my first blackout, or maybe the first time I sought blackout, the first time I wanted nothing more than to be absent from my own life. Maybe it started the first time I threw up from drinking, the first time I dreamed about drinking, the first time I lied about drinking, the first time I dreamed about lying about drinking, when the craving had gotten so deep, there wasn't much of me that wasn't committed to either serving or fighting it. Maybe my drinking began with patterns rather than moments once I started drinking every day, which happened in Iowa City where the drinking didn't seem dramatic and pronounced so much as encompassing and inevitable. There were so many ways and places to get drunk the fiction bar in a smoky double-wide trailer with a stuffed fox head and a bunch of broken clocks, or the poetry bar down the street with its anemic cheeseburgers and glowing schlitzad, a scrolling electric landscape, the gurgling stream, the neon grassy banks, the flickering waterfall. I mashed the lime in my vodka tonic and glimpsed in the sweet spot between two drinks and three, then three and four, then four and five, my life as something illuminated from the inside. There were parties at a place called the farmhouse out in the cornfields, past Friday fish fries at the American Legion. These were parties where poets wrestled in a kiddie pool full of jello, and everyone's profile looked beautiful in the crackling light of a mattress bonfire. Winters were cold enough to kill you. There were endless potlucks where older writers brought braised meats and younger writers brought plastic tubs of hummus and everyone brought whiskey and everyone brought wine. Winter kept going. We kept drinking. Then it was spring. We kept drinking then too. Sitting on a folding chair in a church basement you always face the question of how to begin. It has always been a hazard for me to speak at an AA meeting 
a man named Charlie told a Cleveland AA meeting in 1959, because I knew that I could do better than other people. I really had a story to tell. I was more articulate. I could dramatize it, and I would really knock them dead. He explained the hazard like this. He'd gotten praised. He'd gotten proud. He'd gotten drunk. Now he was talking to a big crowd about how dangerous it was for him to talk to a big crowd. He was describing the perils of an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. He was being articulate about being articulate. He was dramatizing what the art of dramatizing had done to him. He said, I think I got tired of being my own hero. Fifteen years earlier, he'd published a best-selling novel about alcoholism while sober, but he relapsed a few years after it became a bestseller. I've written a book that's been called The Definitive Portrait of the Alcoholic, he told the group, and it did me no good. It was only after five minutes of talking that Charlie finally thought to begin the way others began. My name is Charles Jackson, he said, and I'm an alcoholic. By coming back to the common refrain, he was reminding himself that commonality could be its own saving grace. My story isn't much different from anyone's, he said. It's the story of a man who was made a fool of by alcohol over and over and over, year after year after year, until finally the day came when I learned that I could not handle this alone. Thank you. Okay, we're supposed to talk into the mics. Is that good? Too good? No, just right. Um, hi. Hello. Thank you for, I just hit myself with the mic. I'm so, I'm so <laughs> eager for everyone to hear me. Um, thank you for coming out and talking to me tonight. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I want to say first, congratulations on the book. I love it. Um, it's, it's beautiful. I mean, it's a beautiful book. And um, I wanted to start with the question of bigness, like almost, you know, the elephant in the room to choose the right metaphor, which is you became famous as a writer of essays. And as um, Rick pointed out, you sort of rehabilitated the essay. Am I echoing or is it okay? Okay, thanks. Um, so the essays in the empathy exams and many other essays you've written are really shaped. And um, this is shaped as well, but it's, it's got a monumentalism to it. So I wanted, I was hoping you would talk a little bit about how you got from there, making essays, to here, which is this very big book. Yeah, so well, I, in, in a way, this book feels very continuous with the empathy exams in the sense that I knew from the very beginning that I wanted it to hold multiple kinds of writing braided together. So I knew that I wanted it to hold personal narrative and cultural history and literary criticism and reportage and that I wanted all those modes to speak to each other, uh, which was the mode of, of many of the essays in the empathy exams. Um, and the reasons I wanted those modes to speak to each other in this book had to do with wanting to create a book that could uh, have a kind of chorus of voices in it in the same way that a meeting has a, a recovery meeting has a chorus of voices in it. Um, and also I wanted to kind of enact this structure of a book that could 
open outward from just the singular story of my own life to look at all of these other lives. Um, so this was all well and good in theory. <laughs> and in practice, it was a, like a real bindfuck. Like it was, um, because in a way, like the associative structure of, some, of, the, of the essay is one thing you can ask a reader to kind of follow your mind moving from your own life to the discovery of saccharin accidentally in a laboratory in the 1930s or whenever it happened to, you know, something that happened to your brother once to Madame Bovary and that kind of lateral motion and zigzagging and veering back and forth without necessarily a plot arc with a, a ton of like relentless forward momentum. That's, it, it's, it's, it's not easy, but you're asking your reader to do that with you for like maybe 20 pages, and that's one thing. And trying to take a reader through an entire book, but still trust you in terms of some of those associative lateral moves, I knew that I just needed to come up with a, it was a different structural problem, and it was gonna have a different kind of structural answer. Um, yeah. And so the, the structure of the book went through many, many iterations, <laughs> but um, the most, well, the, the way that I got it drafted involved, I had a, um, I, I was, I had been doing research for the book for years and years and writing some fragments of personal narrative and then my life kind of got upended both um, because the empathy exams kind of took off and, and, and which was exciting but it meant that I, you know, uh, kind of had, people were asking me to do more things than they'd ever asked me to do before and I met my husband and came into my, my daughter's life, and she was five, and so I was suddenly, like, you know, living in a very different world of, like, playgrounds and after school, and, and you know, was actually accountable to human beings who weren't me, and things, so a lot of things changed at once, and I had this one month at a residency in Marfa, Texas, and I remember just showing up and saying, you know, how am I going to write this book, and maybe I can just write down on pieces of paper all the different pieces of the stories that I want to tell. So pieces of my own story, pieces of Charles Jackson's story, pieces of Jean Reese's story, pieces of the kind of history of AA and Bill Wilson's story, all these different pieces of these um, stories of people I had interviewed. And I literally, I wrote them down on pieces of paper and then just like spread them out on the floor mm -hmm. of, um, office, this house that I had there, which was incredible, because back home in New York, I was at that point sharing a futon with my husband in the living room of a one-bedroom rent-controlled apartment, and, like, we didn't have a bed, much less, like, a desk or, like, a centimeter of floor space, so to actually literally have a room where I could put these pieces of paper and start to map out um, what the, what the, the building of this book might actually look like was kind of, like, one of the turning points. Um, really long answer. Really no, that's a good answer. No, I mean, I'm trying not to go off and just drill into process with you. We're not going to do that. Um, one of the things that's really beautiful about this book is that Leslie has a way of engaging with the work of other writers that feels really immediate. So other characters in the book are Charlie Jackson, like you said, and John Berryman, and Jack London a little bit, and Dennis Johnson, and Raymond Carver who's dear to us, and they're important voices in the book, and they're part of what creates this kind of chorus. Um, and often in books like this, it can feel dutiful or like book reporty. but you go to these writers, these drunk male writers, and it's like you're going to them because they have something important that you need. 
So there's an urgency in the way you go to them. And this is not a question. I just really liked it. Um, so one line I really loved was when Leslie is writing about Berryman, which she does really better than anyone, um, with the same heart that he brings to his own writing. It's really beautiful. Um, and Berryman, the poet John Berryman, wonders whether wickedness is soluble in art, which is a really great line. In other words, does the writer turn wickedness into great art? And of course, the corollary, which is, do you require wickedness to, great, to make great art? And this is sort of the engine of the book, I would say. One of the engines of the book is this question, are you going to flatline once you're sober? Do you need to be bad to make a thing, a great thing? So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's a great question. And um, you know, we were chatting a little bit beforehand as well. And, and it, it does make me think of, um, probably many of you have read it, but Claire had a great essay in the Paris Review about um, monstrous men and how we reckon with the beautiful things they sometimes make. And um, yeah, in, in I think one of the kind of selfish reasons behind the research that went into this book was my desperate desire to find examples of uh, stories of writers and makers whose creativity had found new traction in sobriety and in recovery um, as, as alternatives to this fear that I had in my mind that sobriety was going to look like, um, you know, I pictured it different ways at different moments, but the sobriety was going to look like endless nights of like tea with my boyfriend, where we were just like wouldn't have anything to say to each other, or that you know, um, or like a you know just like a, a dried up little like lemon rind or something like that. I had a, you know a, there were all these somehow like um, parched metaphors for what sobriety was going to feel like, or sometimes I thought about it like a tundra. I had all these fears about what sobriety would be, and all these fears about a kind of dull, purposeless prose that would come from sobriety. It was not that actually my, <laughs> the writing I was doing when I was drinking was like God's gift to anyone, but I had fears about what would happen when I was sober. Um, and, you know, so I started researching, and it initially it was happening under the auspices of a doctoral dissertation I was writing. I started researching writers who had gotten sober and um, and just seeing what, what sobriety had done to their work and the way they understood the purpose of their work. And so in that sense, when you say I was like um, going to these writers because they had something that I needed, that's exactly right. Like I, I thought about it as almost a kind of speculative autobiography. Like what are these possible lives that I might look to for, for models of what my own sober creative art could look like? But and which is also complicated by gender. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Well, so, and, and I should say also, it wasn't that I necessarily found the thing I was looking for in each of these cases. Like sometimes, you know, Dennis Johnson is a beautiful example of somebody who like wrote a lot of his most powerful work once he got sober. Um, Carver obviously wrote beautiful, beautiful things in his last decade of sobriety. Um, but a lot of times I found not the kind of fulfillment of my desire, but something that, um, refused it in a way or challenged it. I, I, I saw writers, Berryman, for example, was working on a novel called Recovery that he never finished and like his own recovery was very unfinished. Um, so I, it was important to include that in the book as well, not just like sort of example B, example C, example D of fulfilling my thesis statement about sober creativity, but to show how kind of messy and imperfect it could be. 
Um, yeah, and the gender question, you know, there's a, a, a line in the book where I say, when I was in my early 20s at the Iowa Writers Workshop, that I was, um, uh, I spent my days <laughs> reading um, <laughs> dead poets, dead male poets, and my nights trying to sleep with live male poets. And I think there was, there was definitely a, a sense of um, wanting entry to the boys club, but when it came to great literature and, and you know, I could like lie back on the couch and try to speculate about what that might be about, my relationship to my dad or my older brothers. Um, but the truth is, is a lot of the writers that I fell in love with um, were men and that at a certain point I had to kind of think about what kind of book was I writing and was it really a book all about like white men I had enjoyed reading. And um, <laughs> and there are a lot of white men I enjoyed reading yeah. who are in this book. Um, but I also, it felt important to kind of tackle the issue of gender head on, which we can talk about and I do do in the book. Um, but there are also then female characters who became important presences as well. So Jean Rees, Billie Holiday, Amy Winehouse. Um, those are some of the kind of more famous female figures as well as a set of ordinary people, I put that in quotes because I kind of don't really believe in the concept of an ordinary life, but um, people who went through a particular rehab in Maryland who I interviewed and kind of brought their stories into the folds of the book. And um, two of them were these ex really, to me, very extraordinary women. Yeah, um, yeah. So it, it did, it, it was something I also pushed back against. I both acknowledged the ways in which maleness was part of how I was relating to art and part of how I'd kind of come of age as an artist, but also it felt important to to bring female stories into that kind of braid and weave as well. And I felt like the transparency of the way you brought the female stories in worked really well because as young ambitious writers we do swim in this ocean of white maleness that these are the great writers and to pretend otherwise you know is false. But we can try to acknowledge that there's, they, there are these other voices. And the, the passages about Billie Holiday are really beautiful, especially dealing with this idea of making when you're drunk or on drugs and making when you're clean. And, you know, she comes out, she says, there's a line in the book, dope never helped anyone to play better. So she sort of falls into your thesis, like, oh, maybe there can be a creative life after drugs and alcohol. And her example, and her example as she failed, is really beautiful. Um, so you just brought up the idea of ordinariness. And to me, the, like one of the central cruxes of the book has to do with ordinariness. Um, you talk a lot about how being ordinary, or allowing your story to be ordinary is essential to sobriety. And the kind of constant focus of, on your specialness subverts your sobriety and the book is really funny on specialness and like the self-aggrandizement that comes with being young and drunk and a writer like all at once right um and yet so you're talking a lot about the value of ordinariness and yet you've written a 400 plus page memoir so there's a tension in the book where we're talking about ordinariness is important but um, there's, here's my story, which is very much the project of memoir. I'm gonna give you my story so you feel less alone, right? So that tension was what I loved best about the book. You sort of tell your own story in order to join the ranks of the blessed ordinary, and it was beautiful. So did you think about that as you were writing, or was that something you kind of swam toward? 
Yeah, I mean, I would say swimming toward is like a useful way of describing most of what writing feels like to me, kind of less having the clear conceptual architecture in mind from the outset and more kind of discovering what I'm doing as I'm doing it. Um, with with this book, yeah, it felt um, it felt important to kind of like walk the walk as well as talking the talk when it came to ordinariness, both by... Uh, confessing the ways in which I did not understand my own story as anything extraordinary. Um, that, you know, my drinking was um, was uh, nothing special. Um, it was just, it was just the drinking I happened to do. And at a certain point, um, you know, I talk about uh, telling, telling your own story isn't about thinking your story is more special or better than anyone else's. It's just it's just the life you happen to live. And um, I kind of compare it to like using a nail in your drawer, not because you think it was the most amazing nail that anyone ever made, but just because it's like the one that happens to be in your drawer. And um, I have a, you know, I think each of us has a kind of singular access to our own lives. Um, so in a way, it was like my story was was the story I had the best access to. Um, I really, I loved, and I love to tell, maybe this comes from having originally been a fiction writer, but I love to tell stories with kind of a lot of specificity and granularity, and I have kind of access to the specifics of my own life in a, in a particular way. Um, so that's why I wanted the the spine of the book to be my own story, and, and it kind of gets back to that structural question from the beginning. I also, it felt to me that there needed to be a, a narrative taking people through the pages, even if it, that narrative was going to go on a lot of, um, go down a lot of other forking paths in terms of looking at other people's stories and a kind of larger cultural history. Um, but I, I both wanted to confess the ordinariness of my own story and also to, to, to write a book that, as I got sober and sober, was sort of doing more and more to look outward at other stories. So the, the, other, the other voices kind of come to loom larger and larger as you move through the book. Yeah, you use the phrase, and I, can't, I think it was from a review of a book by Merriman. I think it's an anthology of earnestness. Somebody accuses him of writing an anthology of... Ner from Lowry, yeah. Of Lowry, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I thought of that book when I, a lot. I thought of that line when I was reading the book a lot. I thought there was a way that you were trying to anthologize these voices into the book and allow them to be earnest and not always have everything be the smartest plot choice or, you know, like, oh, here comes another fight with Dave, her boyfriend. Like, oh, God, we're fighting with him again. But there's a way that that brings you really close to the ordinariness of the story. And you talk in the book about how you, as you come out of, as you come into sobriety, you come to distrust your own narratives. Like story itself starts to throw you. Um, which actually brings me to the idea of utility. Like one thing I really loved in this book was the word useful. You write, your story is probably pretty ordinary. That doesn't mean it can't be useful. And when you have like uh, literary types talking about how to structure a book or whatever, useful is not a word that comes up. So can you talk about that word? Yeah, I mean, part of it, I mean, one of the kind of like engines behind this book was my attempt to reckon with how storytelling worked very differently in two different communities that I had been a part of. And one of them was the literary community where 
or, or kind of various manifestations of literary communities where storytelling was all about telling the most beautiful story, the most original story, telling, telling a story that had never been told before, or telling the same story in a way that it had never been told before, um, all of those kinds of imperatives. And, and I describe um, an early evening um, in Iowa when I sort of showed up at this party in, in somebody's basement where literally everybody was sitting around in a circle and the, and the object of the game, if you could call it a game, was just to, to tell your best story. Oh People were going around and it was because it's kind of like nerve wracking. I remember like, you know, my sweaty armpits and like my, like it was just like, what kind of story was I gonna tell? And um, that when I, when I answered recovery, it was another kind of community that was totally formed around storytelling, but there was a really different set of ideas about what the purpose of stories were, and, and that it was much more about um, both sharing your own story as a kind of offering to the room rather than necessarily an expression of like narcissism or ego, even though it can be hard to completely separate out all those things. But, um, and, it, and the sense that if your story was uh, interchangeable with other people's stories, that was okay. Like, and in fact, that was the point. Like, you were going to tell a story that had already been told, yes, and that is precisely why it was going to be helpful to somebody else. And so I, I wanted to, you know, and, and years later in Iowa, when I started going to church basements and telling stories in that way, I would think about that first night where everybody had been in a circle, kind of trying to tell the best story and, and thinking about how those circles just worked in such radically different fashions. Um, and so I wanted to, to write a book that was thinking about that question of like what makes a story valuable. And, and in a way, I think in, in the literary world, it can be really taboo to think about a story as useful or um, you know, to think about kind of getting co consolation from stories or life lessons from stories. But like, I certainly do. Like, I, I mean, the, there are so many books that I have read that have felt like company and so many books that I have read that have changed the way that I live or the way that I think about what it means to be a human being. And like, those, those are extraordinary kinds of usefulness, right? Yeah, I think that it's a charge, like I, for me, it's a moral charge of memoir, that there's this charge to sort of get over your hump of feeling like you're hung up on how narcissistic it is to write this story and to remember that when the other person comes at, they're being transported into something else and they're seeing the darkness or the difficulty of their own experience reflected there. And it's something I think about a lot and talk about a lot with students. It's like, yes, it feels narcissistic to you, but it's actually, you know, you talk about Lewis Hyde in the book, it's actually this kind of gift-like quality where you're giving it to someone. Have you did you read that book by Kristen Dombeck um, no. on the it's this book called oh yes yes on yeah. the narcissism of others yeah it's like on it's I think it's called on the selfishness of others an essay on the fear of narcissism and so it's, a, good. It's, a, it's a great book but one of the things she I think she mentions in the book she I was I did a conversation with her once where she um, talked about how you know people will talk about the rise of the memoir as kind of like a sign of the narcissism of our times, but that you can actually read it as precisely the opposite, right? That people, the fact that so many people are hungry to consume memoir is proof that of, of the opposite, that people are interested in these lives that aren't their own. And I think that it, it really is, um, for me, when I, when I get petrified and anxious and feel shame about writing about my life and hear all those voices that say, you're such a narcissist, why do you think your story is important, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. It's like, I really, the only place that I can come back to that feels like 
stable ground is my experiences as a reader and how much it has meant to me to read other people's stories. That's what feels like um, a kind of reminder of what this thing can be when other people encounter it, or a hope for what it can be when other people encounter it. Yeah, and I mean, I think if it was, if we were all writing them and then there were no readers, it would speak to this like, you know, perfect culture of narcissism, but the fact that there's a readership proves Karen's point. Um, yeah, it's a great book, The Selfishness of Others. It's like one of those little FSG standalone essays. Very good. Um, I wanted, you mentioned earlier about, uh, actually in the opening of your book, you talk about beginnings, the, the first time you drank, and you go almost immediately to the first time you drank and had a sexual experience. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that. Um, you know, we're in this moment where constantly these threads are being drawn to the Me Too movement and to issues of consent. This book hasn't really been talked about in that context, but I think it's a really important book in terms of talking about how women use and abuse alcohol in the context of sexuality. And Leslie does a lot of really, um, I think, I hate this word, but she does, you know what word I'm gonna say. Yeah, she totally knew. Leslie does a lot of brave writing, um, talking about her own experiences in that nexus. And I, there's a line from um, Sarah Heppola, uh, who wrote the memoir Blackout. She talks about her time of being a blackout drunk. She describes it as, I drank to consent. So she would drink until she consented. And I thought that was such a beautiful phrase. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the relationship between alcohol and consent, not as something like for me as a tut-tutting mother, but you know, sort of as someone in the midst of it. Yeah, um, I do. I think that part of the reason that, as you point out, the, the sort of litany of first times that opens the book travels quite quickly to the first time I drank with a boy is because the, my life with men and, and my experience of desire and my desire to be desired all felt so like inextricably linked up with drinking from the very beginning. And um, that sense of part of what I loved about booze was that it um, made me feel like I had permission to exist, which might sound super dramatic, but it just, I always felt like I had uh, to, to prove why I deserve to be in the room, why I deserve to be um, in a relationship, why I deserve to be at an institution, why I deserve to kind of be speaking, why I deserve to be listened to, and um, booze just like shut down all those voices and just like let me be in a room, and it was okay that I was there, and um, so much of my relationship with my relationships with men over the years felt like plagued by that same anxiety of like wh why do I deserve love in some way and that it felt like the only thing that could kind of like um, sate that anxiety or quell that anxiety was was to get enough affirmation or enough desire and so there's something about the that kind of feeling like a like a leaky bucket where you could just like take 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 and it would never be enough felt like the logic of drinking and it felt like the logic of men and, and um, you know, and that the kind of thrill of falling in love felt like the only thing that was as thrilling as like getting drunk. I mean, everything just felt so related to me about, about, um, about men and drinking. Um, but the, I think the question of consent is so tricky and, and I wish that 
trying to figure out how to say this. I, I wish that, that we talked more about alcohol when we talked about consent and that we could find a language for doing that that didn't feel like a species of victim blaming. Because I think that's sometimes why it's hard to bring alcohol into the conversation is that it can, it can code as somehow saying, somehow assigning some sort of blame and that's not at all the way I want it brought into the conversation. Um, but I do think there's there's just there's just deeply a relationship between um, kind of women finding themselves in situations of peril and women getting drunk and and so it was less that I wanted to kind of philosophize on that in the book and more that I I dissect a few of my own experiences and thinking about those spaces where I I don't know what the language of I don't know what language of consent applies to some of the situations I found myself in. And I, I actually feel like we don't have language for a lot of sort of murky in-between states of danger and regret. Um, and But I did just want to kind of get, zoom in on some moments from my own life that spoke to that relationship between um, booze, men, sex, regret, and how those things can kind of um, become part of, I think, I think, the history of many women who drink more than, more than they wish they had. And maybe not always, maybe just when they're in certain periods of their lives, would that tend to be tied to not great sexual situations? Um, I have time for one more question and then we'll open it up to you guys and I'm gonna ask a selfish question. Um, sorry. Uh, the book is about pain, ultimately. Like, that was one of the reasons the book moved me so much, was you really described your own pain, and, that, you know, sort of its absence and its presence. And um, you didn't shy away from that, and there's a lot of ways in which female pain is something that we're very uncomfortable with in terms of literature. And you guys probably know Leslie's incredible essay, Grand Unified Theory of Female Pain, from Empathy Exams which uh, was really important to me during writing my last book, Love and Trouble. And she talks about the idea of the wounded woman and this, that we all want to reject the idea of woman as wound or woman as victim. But we also need to talk about, you know, it's valid for women to talk about their pain. And there's a way you can write about your pain without, you know, she says, walking backward into a voyeuristic rehashing of old cultural models. So you give us examples, an emo cutter, hurt-seeking missile of womanhood, a body gone drunk or bruised or barren. Um, and I felt like there was a clue to this book in that passage, that almost like that passage was a dare that you took. Like you wrote that paragraph and they were like, heck yeah, I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna write that book that is the book of female pain. And I'm not gonna call it female pain, I'm just gonna write my pain. That's not really a question, but did you think No, no, no. I mean, it's, it's kind of an amazing not question um, in the sense that, <laughs> no, because I do, I mean, I do think there's, there is, a, I think there are lots of ways in which that essay was throwing down a kind of gauntlet that became this book. And, and certainly one of them was this, this, um, wanting to create space for the discussion of pain in a way that could feel, again, useful, um, rather than simply kind of all the charges that get thrown at women who talk about their pain too much, that they're solipsistic, self-absorbed, narcissistic, looking for men to take care of them or pity them or 
um, save them ends, that there, there can be other, there can be a kind of meaning to be found in pain that isn't about seeking pity or isn't about sort of dramatizing or, or extolling the self. And, and so I did want to explore that in this book. Um, but I also, there's another line in that essay that also feels like one of the gauntlets thrown down that became this book, which is um, where I say, uh, um, suffering is interesting, but so is getting better. And, 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 that essay, Grand Unified Theory of Female Pain, was, 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 was not particularly about getting better. It was more about clearing space for the discussion of pain and trying to like uh, question the ways we judge that discussion. But I very much wanted with this book to, to write about pain, but to also write about that space that exists when you are living into a life that is not entirely defined by pain and that is defined by other things. It's defined by just getting up in the morning and being okay, getting up in the morning and going to work and trying to show up for your partner and maybe showing up for a group of people in a church basement that night. That kind of um, figuring out what stability might feel like um, I wanted to explore the ways that that could be a compelling story, too. Yeah, it's very hard yeah. to write contentment, right? It's extremely difficult. Um, all right, well, we'll wrap it up and open it up to y'all. Yeah. Um, so the question was about relationships and sort of, um, forgive me if I'm missing something in the summary, but about re relationships and, and also kind of, yeah, what, what makes for a strong relationship and whether in a way sometimes separation and coming back together can, can become part of strengthening a relationship or deepening a relationship. And I guess I, I um, what I can say about that in the context of, of this book is, is that there is a relationship story that's, that's a huge part of my drinking and sobriety story and, and I didn't actually want, I didn't sit down to write a book about that relationship, um, but I sort of found that I, that I had to write about that relationship in order to tell the story of why I stopped drinking and, and what early sobriety was like for me. And well, and, and part, of, part of your question that, that, that was really speaking to me um, had to do with like separating and then coming back together um, because there, there was a, a way that I thought that one of the rewards of getting sober was going to be like saving this relationship and um, that I talk about this thing called contract logic, which is basically, it's, 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 alcoholics have no monopoly on contract logic, but basically the idea that if I do X, you know, uh, the universe is going to give me Y, or if I do X, God is going to give me Y. And, and, you know, I had this sense that, well, if I got sober, this relationship, that's going to be my reward. This relationship is saved. And um, that really what happened was that I just had to reckon with the relationship more fully. And that was this kind of long, messy, ragged process where we broke up, we got back together. Um, I wanted the relationship to be the reward for getting sober, but in fact, seeing the relationship more clearly was the reward for being sober, and that's not actually the reward that everybody wants. Bummer. <laughs> so, yeah. um, so, so certainly, um, certainly that question kind of speaks to so many things that are at play in the book. Yeah, it actually speaks right to the plot of the book. It's a great question. The question is about the relationship between sobriety and motherhood. Um, yeah, and the, and the book actually, um, it 
it ends before the part of my life when I became a, a stepmother or a mother. Um, but it's something that I've, I've thought quite a bit about. And um, yeah, I think, I mean, many women are mothers while still in the midst of active, um, you know, alcoholic drinking. And, and many women who are like wonderful mothers, that's part of their story. Um, but I, I, have, I have felt just exceedingly grateful that I got sober uh, well before I became a mother, because I think for me, one of the ways that, one of the things that would have been hard about drinking while mothering was just how much I would have essentially just resented my kids as like obstacles to like just being able to like go ahead and get good at drunk at like 6 p.m. Um, and you know, and I, I guess the other thing I'll say is that certain things that, that felt useful in recovery insofar as they applied to drinking, like taking things one day at a time or one hour at a time or one minute at a time, like however small you needed to make the unit, you could make it small enough. Um, those have been just deeply useful to me in parenting as well. Like that idea of like, I don't have to think about being someone's parent forever. I have to think about being someone's parent for like today and what's that going to look like. Um, so there are certain ways in which kind of the ways in which recovery has shaped me feel very applicable to parenting as well. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's it's a great question. The, the question is about um, sort of why and how we feel the need to apologize and maybe especially women feel the need to apologize for having feelings or expressing feelings or somehow maybe the felt imperative sometimes that in order to be spoken or narrated, a feeling needs to be bad enough, yeah, or, 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 or bigger. Um, and yeah, and I, 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 and I think that is like, yeah, deeply one of the questions of this book. First of all, this sense that that um, ordinary lives are interesting, ordinary feelings are interesting, ordinary pain is interesting. I mean, these are not facts. These are my opinions. But I, I believe them very deeply that, that things don't have to be um, grand, dramatic plot points in order to be worth narrating or worth honoring. Um, and I think certainly there was something about drinking for me that was uh, a kind of a desire to take a bad feeling and make it even worse, right? And maybe that hunger for superlative feelings rather than just like low-grade feelings um, was one of the, was, was, you know, it was like booze could feel like, you know, tossing kerosene onto a fire. And, and that hunger for ex extremity, I think, is, um, is, and that, and that kind of like narrative grandiosity or something is is totally bound up with drinking. And I and I think one of the antidotes to that is to say it, it's your feeling can be ordinary sized and not something that you have to apologize for, and still something that kind of merits speaking and merits listening to. Yeah. So the the question is about um, well the relationship between addiction and creativity and sort of what kind of argument can be made in the opposite direction um, for the ways in which uh, addiction might kind of obstruct creativity and, and what are the other kinds of sources of creativity and, and in relation to uh, the writer Elizabeth Gilbert um, and how she's spoken about these things. And yeah, I mean, I would say one of, one of the kind of primary engines of this book is a desire to like debunk that knee-jerk association between addiction and creativity um, on many levels. So thinking about, well, what, how have we come to these archetypes of 
like the rogue drunk genius, how are those archetypes often very, very gendered? Like we have a little bit more of an available archetype for the, the drunk male rogue genius whose dysfunctionality is like sort of dashing and charming and we don't, you know, when a woman drinks too much, she's probably just like being a bad mom. You know, those are like very different cultural archetypes. Um, but also trying to look at some of these writers, like, you know, um, one of the places where I really found that mythology of like drinking and creativity being seen as bound up together and kind of mutually constitutive was in this 1969 Life magazine profile of John Berryman. Um, the title of the profile was Whiskey and Ink. And, you know, it, it began by saying, whiskey and ink, these are the two fluids that John Berryman needs to survive. This idea that he's literally like kind of bringing in, bringing the whiskey into his body and it's coming out as, as poems or something. And that, you know, his poetry was, was brilliant because it was tuned into this kind of psychic darkness and the booze was the thing that helped him survive that attunement. Uh, can you talk a little bit about when you made your proposal to your dissertation yeah. committee, I yeah. think, about yeah. the topic? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so so I, I, I think, you know, part of what, um, part of why I wanted to write this book was to say, like, John Berryman was actually, like, shitting his pants and his liver was so large you could see it through his skin. And, like, it wasn't just the whiskey and ink, you know? It was, like, a lot darker and harder than that. Um, and the flip side of that was wanting to think about, you know, okay, if, if the mythos of the drunk genius is actually more complicated than, than we've built it up to be, then there's this other thing that we never talk about, which is the relationship between sobriety and creativity and what does that look like. And, and that was really the focus of my, of my dissertation, um, these sort of authors who got sober and how, how it shaped their work. And when I was presenting one of the early chapters of my dissertation, this is the moment Claire was talking about, um, one of my advisors basically, you know, said some version of, well, yeah, I'm less interested in the relationship between sobriety and creativity. What, what about the relationship between addiction and creativity? And it was so funny because it was like, I mean, this is like a motion anybody who's spent time in academia will recognize this motion of like, well, I, I don't really care. What if your project was actually this other project that has nothing to do with your project? And, um, and so I felt like, I, but in that moment, I felt like she was saying, you know what, this old mythos that you're trying to debunk, like, that's actually... That's the mythology I still believe in. So, a door frame? Is that what you said? Oh, awesome. <laughs> Whenever my husband needs a door frame described, he's like, Leslie, do it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, the question is, is, is whether um, people in my life are always asking me to write their, their Bumble profiles. And, and um, yeah, I mean, I. No, is a short answer. And in fact, during the during the the you know two months of my life that I was doing online dating, I actually had to recruit one of my friends to write my my <laughs> profile. It's like a true confession. Um, but I will say that w one of the blessings of my life is that I have a lot of writers as friends. And and one thing I notice that that um, comes from that is that like they're really good describers of things. So if, you know, when one of my friends goes on a date with somebody and I'll say, well, we you know, what was he like? I don't just get a, well, he was nice, but we didn't really have chemistry. She'll, you know, she'll say, well, yeah, I felt like um, 
the way in which his body moved through space was both was appealing, but it wasn't it, it wasn't erotic to me. You know, there's like a very it's like it's all, it's like a little bit more it's like a little bit more precise and a little bit more well tuned. So I mean, maybe there's some way in which the way I describe um, you know date night with my husband is similarly compelling to friends. But but I, I guess I would say I feel like I I get to move through um, very articulate company, and uh, I I feel grateful for that. So. Yeah, so the question was about, you know, if, if uh, it's a great question, if, if, we, if we can all sort of admit that recovery, stability, wellness are, are, are challenging things to write well, then what are some suggestions about how to write them or how to bring them to the page in compelling ways? And yeah, I think it might actually have something to do with that earlier question about ordinary feelings and making space for ordinary feelings. Because the truth is, is that, at least in my experience, sobriety um, is not a narrative flatline. And life doesn't shut down in sobriety. It, it actually kind of opens up in sobriety. And the truth is that there was something, at least about my addiction, that was quite tedious, claustrophobic, and repetitive. And so it wasn't exactly promising narrative terrain either. Um, and so I guess that to me is the, the flip side of sobriety is sometimes more interesting than we want to give it credit for is like addiction is sometimes more boring than we give it credit for. Um, and when it comes to then thinking about well, how to write sort of sobriety and recovery in compelling ways on the page, um, I think part of the answer is that it's not that life turns into something static and, and utterly reconciled once you get sober. Um, it's, it's, it's actually life is still naughty and charged and evolving and difficult and um, unexpected and, and, you know, in motion, in flux. And so I think honoring those ways that life isn't resolved, honoring those ways in which it keeps kind of changing and unfolding in unexpected ways, and also honoring that just because a feeling isn't... Um, or an event isn't the most dramatic capital letter thing, it actually can hold a lot of richness and a lot of complexity and sort of tuning into those veins of complexity as well. A great place to end. Thank you so much, Claire, Thank and thanks all for coming out. <laughs>